a Podcast One production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Well, Ellie Cole may only be 28, but she's been competing at the top of her game since she was a teenager. Ellie first put on the green and gold as a 16-year-old at the Paralympics in Beijing, and now she's a six-time Paralympic champion. Outside of the pool, she's overcome childhood cancer, which saw her lose one of her legs, severe burnout, the passing of two of her coaches, and serious injuries, which took her out of the pool and really made her question if she'd ever return to the sport. Ellie, as you'll see, is funny, charismatic, engaging, and just has this beautiful outlook on life and adversity. With Ellie's story, we're going to go right back to the very beginning. I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of two, Mm. which was a real shock to my family, Um, especially considering, uh, you know, my family hadn't really been around too much illness uh, at all. And then all of a sudden their two-year-old daughter had cancer. Mm. Um, So that was quite heartbreaking on my parents. The interesting thing is the type of cancer that I had, chemotherapy doesn't work on. So I did a lot of clinical trials and I was in and out of hospital for the next year, so next 12 months. And you know, when I think back to those times, although I don't remember it, you know, they were the times where I was supposed to really be exploring my childhood. Mm. Um, and I was stuck in a hospital getting pumped full of poison. My poor twin sister was sitting next to me, you know, following the journey. Mm. And um, after 12 months the doctors decided that the clinical trials weren't working and that they had to amputate my leg. So, you know, I did lost all of my hair. I was very, very sick. Um, an unfortunate thing about chemotherapy is that it kills all of your white blood cells mm. as well as the cancer cells. So, you know, any kind of small cold would make me really sick. Apparently I had just a mouthful of ulcers and mm. I couldn't sleep and um, it was, was not a very nice time to watch your two-year-old go through. What were the symptoms for your parents? What made them realise that something wasn't quite right with their two-year-old? Well, based on what I've heard, I think that I was born with the cancer because in terms of development, Mm. I was, you know, walking at a later stage than my twin sister. So I was lucky that I had a twin sister to compare myself to. Mm. Um, And then I would wake up during the nights, like not being able to sleep and describing the symptoms of pins and needles. And then as I started to grow... Um, my right leg was growing at a slower rate than my left leg. Mm. And we found out later that's because the tumour was wrapped around the main blood vessel. And so my leg wasn't getting fed the the right amount of blood and so it wasn't growing at the same rate. Um, And then the last symptom that I showed was the tumour presenting itself. So that was a bump that was behind my right knee and my parents thought that it was a spider bite and they didn't kind of put everything together. Mm. It was like a bit of a puzzle. Yeah. Um, And then took my – took – me to the hospital and they did a biopsy and then it came back as cancer, which, you know, obviously my parents' world just came completely tumbling down. Mm. Um, I have I didn't really ask too many questions about my cancer journey as I was growing up, but as I've gotten older, I've asked my mum especially like what she went through emotionally and it's pretty hard for me to hear sometimes. Um, just, I guess, the fear and the trepidation that she had and mm. the strain that it put on my parents' relationship and also what my siblings went through. Mm. It's like I almost carry a little bit of survivor's guilt and everybody that I tell that to is like, don't be silly, it wasn't your fault that you were diagnosed with cancer. But at the same time, you know, I still see 
I guess, the absolute disaster that it caused my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I ever hear of any families that have cancer, whether they're adults or children, like I, my heart just always goes out to them. So 12 months on those clinical trials mm-hmm. and then they made the call that they were going to amputate your leg. Yep. Take me through that. Well, I obviously don't remember the call, but um, so how do you explain to a three-year-old at that stage mm. that she has to have her leg amputated? So that was the first challenge for my parents. When I was going into the surgery, I didn't really know what was happening. And my mum told me that I had a naughty sore and the doctors were going to take the naughty sore away and that I was going to come out looking a little bit different. And so I went into the surgery and I was like, yep, sweet, here we go. (laughs) Take that naughty sore. And um, I was one of the very first children in, in Australia to be fitted with a prosthetic leg whilst in surgery. And, um... The reason why they fit prosthetic legs onto freshly amputated limbs is to reduce the post-surgery swelling. And um, so when I came out of surgery, I still had two legs. One of them wasn't real anymore. But Dad has told me that I came out of surgery and I lifted the covers up and I saw that there were still two legs there. Mm. And I was like, all right. And I just went straight back to sleep. Um, So for me, everything was all fine, Mm. even though I can't even imagine what my parents were going through. And then I've since been told that the prosthetist put the wrong size foot on my prosthetic and then he came into the room with an Allen key because that's how they pull all of your legs apart. <laughs> <laughs> and he, um, he pulled my foot off and then I started screaming the house down and that's when I realised that oh. I was going to be different for a mm. long time. Um, but it never really stopped me. I, I was very cheeky as a young girl and I spent the next week um, you know, in the hospital, kind of visiting everyone. And I kind of got around on a skateboard. Um, and then my <laughs> parents kind of realized that I was still cheeky um, and I was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like for your parents? Um, how, did they, how did they explain that to you? They didn't really have to explain it to me because when I had the prosthesis take my foot off, it was a bit of a revelation for me. The one thing that my parents did when I was younger that I'm really grateful for is that they never kind of explained to me what having a disability was. Mm. They never wrapped me up in cotton wool. And I think having a twin sister that I could go out into the world with and just wreak havoc um, was a real blessing. But they never really explained to me that I was going to be different to everybody else. And so I went through primary school um, and kindergarten thinking that I was exactly the same, but a little bit different, but Mm. not really. Um, So... For me, not having my parents tell me that I was different time and time and time again kind of reinforced to me that I was the same as everybody else. Mm. But if you flip the coin over on that, it's made me really upset to see when I first started Paralympic swimming, you know, how Paralympic swimmers were treated or how Paralympic Mm. athletes were treated um, in comparison to Olympic athletes. But, you know, the times are changing and it is getting Mm. better and it's something that I've fought for since I was 14 years old. So Yeah. What was it like then growing up? With one leg mm-hmm. in the early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even, like, begin this case. So when you're in the early 90s, um, prosthetics weren't what they are now. Right. So right now I'm walking on this leg that was made by the U.S. Army. It's $160,000. It's got computers wow. in it. I know, I didn't pay for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's got computers in it. It can go in water. It's pretty much like the Range Rover of prosthetics. Now, back when I first started being fitted for prosthetic legs, I was three years old. The only way that you could keep a prosthetic on 
to your body at that mm. time was with these like horrific straps that would go around your body. Um, was it like a belt? It was kind of like a belt. Yeah. So it's like a belt that had three different parts and it would it's, it hold your leg onto your body. But every time you took a step, your leg would drop down oh. a little bit. And oh my goodness. <gasps> um, but, you know, that was the technology that was available at the mm. time. And um, the US Army obviously have a lot of war veterans that are in need mm. of really good high-tech prosthetics. So they have invested a lot of uh, time and money with Autobot, who's a company um, that is pretty much monopolizes on making prosthetics mm. um, and have created these wonderful prosthetics that we can use now. But man, oh man, I tell you now, if I, have to, if I had to put one of those legs back on again, I couldn't even take a step. I really couldn't. Yeah. Um, I actually put one of my old prosthetics on a year ago. This sounds really Do weird. Do you keep them? No, I don't keep okay. them. But I do keep the one that I had previously just in case something catastrophic happens. Anyway, so this leg, the knee joint didn't break, but the top bit, the socket broke. And I put my old prosthetic on last year and I tried to take a step and I just walked straight into the wall. I was like, I can't even like walk in this. Wow. Um, So they're advancing that quickly that from one prosthetic to the next is just like unbelievable. Well, tell me, what about bullying as a kid? Did you encounter bullying? Uh, no, not not really. Um, one thing that I think about bullying is all about the attitude of the person who's being bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, if I did have a comment made to me, I'd kind of just brush it off my shoulder. Um, I think, you know, that was just because I have a lot of self-confidence. <laughs> um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that kids didn't try to bully me. I had a few that did uh, when I first went to high school and I kind of shut that down pretty quickly. What um, there? Oh, just kids making comments saying that, like I was a pirate and I was just, just, I was just like, come mm. on, be creative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I find if, um, you know, people make comments like that to me and if I kind of just laughed back at them, I was like, <laughs> yeah, mm. they'd be like, oh, okay, that didn't really affect the way I wanted it. Yeah. To. Um, but, you know, one thing mum always told me when I was growing up was to never look down and it was a really strange message at the time. But if I think about it, you know, when I was going through – high school and primary school, I always kind of stood up straight and looked confident and wasn't really that target that that bullies were looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's such a simple concept, mm. but it works very, very well. So, yeah, bullying didn't really occur to me. And as I said previously, I'm so oblivious that if people do mm. say things to me, I'm like, were you, were you talking to me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the other person with one leg, <laughs> even though there are no other people with one leg. Well, let's talk about swimming. So okay. how did you, how, it wasn't soon after you lost your leg that you got into swimming. Just tell me, how did you get into it? Eight weeks wow. it was after my leg amputation. So one of the great things about acquiring a disability is that you generally are directed into swimming as a form of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And that's because you, know, you can take the weight off your body. You can exercise without that str- added strain that mm. you have on land with gravity gravity can be horrible. <laughs> um, so I was directed into swimming eight weeks after to kind of just learn to move again and mm. get everything moving. And um, that's where a lot of our Paralympic swimming stars come from is, you know, from a rehabilitation pool, mm. which is really cool to think about. So yeah, I started swimming eight weeks after my leg amputation and I went around in circles for a couple of months or a couple of weeks, I don't know. <laughs> and um absolutely fell in love with the water. I never really planned, obviously, at the age of three to become a Paralympian. I never actually really planned ever to become a Paralympian, but um, just loved the water. And it was something I could do with my twin sister where I was a complete equal to her. 
um, because running around at that stage was off the, off the cards. Mm. So for me, like, take me to swimming lessons every day of the week. I was a happy kid. So what made you then, at what stage, and what made you take it seriously? Um, so everyone goes through their learn to swim. Did you do learn to swim? Yes. Yeah, see, yes. everybody does learn to swim. <laughs> so I went through the learn to swim program at King Swimming, um, which was a very successful swim school at the time. And I kind of graduated from learn to swim at the age of nine, I want to say. And I had to decide what my next career move at nine was going to be. Very important decision at nine. Yeah, I tell you, it is. <laughs> so I was trying to choose between ballet because I'd just seen the Swan Lake production. So I was obsessed with ballet. <laughs> And I specifically remember saying to my mum that I wanted to be a ballerina and she was like, what? <laughs> so it was a ballet, netball or swimming that I had to choose between. Or violin. Violin, violin. was also on the hey. side. Anyway, so I wanted to choose netball. I was really leaning towards netball because yep. all my friends played netball. And mum told me that I should just go and try swimming because she really wanted mm-hmm. me to be a swimmer because yep. she was one as well. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'll just go to one session just so mum will stop harping on me. <laughs> so I went to my first swimming session and it was with my coach, Russell Parsons, my mm-hmm. very first swim coach who sadly passed away last year. Rest in peace, Russell. Um, anyway, so I got to the swimming session and um, I, I saw my coach, Russell, and he saw I had one leg and he did not care. He's like, I want you to do the same stuff as everybody else. And so on my first swimming session, we practiced getting out of the pool without using our knees. That was like the first thing you learn as a squad swimmer because, you know, yeah. using your knees means weakness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that strong upper body strength to push yourself up and get straight onto your feet. Yeah, and I was yeah. super good at it because yeah. I had like next to no weight in my lower body because I had, a, yeah, right. you know, 10 kilos less than everybody else. So, um, you know, everything that I did, he expected me to be the same as everybody else. Yeah. I love that about him. So he has always held a very special place in my heart um, and I just kept going back after that. And then that was when you took it seriously and you knew you could com- compete yeah, no. and compete well? <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> so for me, swimming with Russell for the first year was just about having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to my first state championships and really enjoyed that and found that out that the Paralympics existed through my sports teacher. And so I discovered this world of Paralympics and I went and told my coach at the time, who was Rob Moon, that the Paralympics existed. And there were people who were swimming who were just like me. And I got really excited by that, that concept. And I remember watching the Athens Paralympics. I was sitting in front of the TV with my legs crossed and my straight back and I just was blown away by these athletes. Mm. And um, so I went to my very first swimming competition right after the Athens Paralympics was on. And it was a How vic- old were you then? Oh, God, I would have been about 11. Yeah, okay. And um, it was a Victorian state championships and my whole family came in my mum's, uh, I think we had a Prado at that stage. My whole family packed into the Prado. I remember I was reading a book about horses on the way up <laughs> and I was squished in between my sisters and I was so nervous. And I got to the state championships and all of these Paralympians had just returned from the Athens Paralympics. Mm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm racing against the, like the people I saw on the television. Wow. And I said to my sisters, I was like, I'm going to beat all of them, <laughs> all of them. And I dived in for my 50-meter freestyle and my goggles fell off. And I stopped, oh. which you never stop when your goggles fall off. And I put my goggles back on and I kept swimming and I came last. Oh, so cute. <laughs> I, I cried the whole way home. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's when... I was like, I'm taking this seriously. Right. I'm never getting beaten again. 
I got beaten like so many times after that. But, but the determination was there, right, oh, from the outset. Big time. So you had never seen the Paralympics before your teacher said to you, hey, did you know this was happening? Never. So I actually grew up in the school system um, racing against able-bodied kids at our swimming championships and our districts and then I'd get to zones and then I would always miss out on the national team. Right. And I was racing against able-bodied kids and um, – my teacher told me about this like Paralympic category that they had at school mm. nationals. And uh, I went, it was in Adelaide, and I qualified for the school national team, which was like the highlight of my career <laughs> at the age of nine. And then I went there and I won medals and I was just like, man, this is the best. Cool. Yeah. I was probably a bit older than nine, actually. I was probably about 12. Yeah. But yeah, it was the best. Well, let's fast forward to your first Paralympics then, which was Beijing in mm-hmm. 2008 you've given us that lead up of just how big a moment this would have been. But your first race didn't quite work out how you would have liked. No, I forgot about that. (laughs) And you forgot about your race. And I forgot about my race. How does that happen? What happened? Tell us a story. (laughs) So I qualified for Beijing, the Mm -hmm. Paralympic Games, super excited. I was 16 years old and everybody on the swim team was in their early 20s. And so I was like this little young gun. I'd won um, a silver at the world championships two years prior. Mm -hmm. So I was going in with a tiny amount of international experience, but not Mm -hmm. much. Anyway, so the first race at the Paralympic Games was the 200-meter individual medley, which is the worst event ever because you have to change stroke four times Mm. and then your body just doesn't know what's going on. And so it just has a meltdown halfway (gasps) and you just have to push through it all. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I was warming up for that race in the final and I got the, um, the start time wrong in my mind. And so I was warming up a little bit later than I should have been. And back then they had the Speedo super suits and they were so hard to get on. They're like yeah, these little yeah. tiny swimsuits that look like they would fit a three-year-old. That are banned now? They're banned now. Yeah. So I had to try and pull that on and it took me like 40 minutes to get the suit on. Wow. Anyway, so I came out of the changing rooms and... Uh, Brendan Keogh, our head coach, was like, where have you been? Your race is about to swim. Oh. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I've got heaps of time. And in the um, team room, we had a television that would show the races that were on the at the pool. And the race that was on in the pool was the race before mine. <laughs> it was Matt Cowdery winning gold for Australia. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm meant to be, like, literally Walking. standing behind the blocks pretty much right now. Yep. So I like ran, actually I didn't have my leg on. So I, have you ever seen a crutch run? It's like <laughs> you have crutches and you just like scurry as fast as you can and like you knock people in the shins oh, and no. everything. I was like, get out of my way, I'm racing. <laughs> and I got to the call room and I was like, Ellie Cole for Australia, let me in, let me in, let me in. And they were like, I'm really sorry, but we're not allowed to. Like you missed your mark time by 20 minutes. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh God. Anyway, so I went out of the call room and my coach was there, Rob Moon, and I just cried into him. Like, mm. just he just hugged me and I just cried. Because um, at 16, you know, you dream of this moment and you miss it because you're terrible at life management skills. Aww. Like, you know, it's ridiculous. But you still won medals at 2008 Beijing Games. Yes. So, mm. so if I, like, wind back a few years from 2008 – my biggest competitor and my overall all-time hero and still is mm. um, was Natalie Dutois, who was a South African mm-hmm. swimmer. And she was like, oh, my God. Like, she was just 
I can't even talk about her now and I'm 28. <laughs> yeah. So she was just, I would kiss her shoes if she walked into the, the room queen right now. queen to you. She's still a queen to me. So I was racing against her and all I wanted to do in my whole swimming career was beat her. Mm. Um, and I was racing against her in Beijing and she beat me by like six body lengths. And I won a silver medal. Mm. I was so happy with the silver medal. And I was like, I'm coming for you, Natalie. I'm coming for you. 100 um, meter back that was? Yeah. yeah. No, it was 100 meter butterfly. Butterfly. I can't even remember. One thing you'll find out about swimmers that have been around for a long time is that everything kind of blurs into one. <laughs> so 100-meter butterfly, it was the only good 100-meter butterfly race I've ever done in my swimming career. I haven't gone anywhere near that time since. Yeah, right. Um, so I won a silver and I was so happy just to be racing in the same pool as her. That's cool. And although I'm like a six-time Paralympic gold medalist now, if I still raced against Natalie and she was still swimming, I would still be like... I got to race again. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting you should bring that up because <laughs> we're going to move on to London mm. and she is a part of this story as well. It was a bit of a turning point really in your career, wasn't it? And But the lead up was anything but straightforward. Can oh, you take up. us through that? So after I finished high school, I was invited by the Australian Institute of Sport to go and train in Canberra. And that was like winning a gold medal almost because – I went there on my year six camp and I saw the AIS and I saw the athletes and I just wanted to be an AIS athlete more than anything. When I got my scholarship paper, I was so excited. So I packed up my parents' car and they drove me up to Canberra from Melbourne. And I remember playing Highway to Hell the whole way out there because I knew it was going to be a really tough time. Anyway, so I got to the AIS and I was so excited to be there. And I was in an apartment and I had two rowers in my apartment and a 400 meter hurdler. And it was like, being on spring break for the first year, I completely took advantage of my scholarship and I was going out to this place called Mooseheads every Saturday night. <laughs> and then I'd go to training on Monday morning and my coach would be like, why are your eyes so bloodshot? And I'd be like, I don't know, because I just turned 18. Chlorine. I know, I just turned 18. And I looked back at that time and I was like, you're an idiot for wasting that opportunity. Yeah. So I went to my um, world championships uh, first year of being an AIS scholarship holder. Mm -hmm. And I swam so poorly that our head coach asked me to get a blood test because I he thought I had something wrong with oh, me. Oh, no. And it was just because I had not put the work in. Mm. And I was so disappointed in myself that I went back to Australia and was like, I'm going to give London like an absolute everything I have. Mm. Like I want to beat Natalie Dutois. Like it's my goal. It's my dream. I have the team around me to support mm -hmm. me and help me do that. And you're going to Mooseheads on Saturday mm. nights, you know. So I was like, okay, your teenage years are over. It's go time. Mm. And so I didn't miss a training session for like two years. So mm -hmm. we're training like 15 times a week or something. At and that didn't stage. step back into Mooseheads? Nope. Mm -hmm. I was like the pinnacle of what an elite athlete was. Mm -hmm. I was making sure my nutrition was right. I was getting all my training sessions in. I was getting my recovery in, making sure I was doing really well at uni. Um, you know, just try to do everything as perfectly as I could. And everything was going so well until my coach decided that he wanted to leave the program. And this was, I think, about seven months before the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, goodness me, like, you know, I need a bit of consistency right now. Yeah. Anyway, so he left and we brought in a new coach, Steve Young, who he was so excited to be there. He wore his AIS uniform on pool deck. He like, wore it everywhere. Like if I went out for coffee with him, he probably would have worn his AIS uniform. <laughs> so he was proud to be there. He was committed. Like he was everything I wanted in a coach. And he said to me one day at training, he's like, 
I will never miss a training session. Like I'm here for you from mm. start to the finish. Mm-hmm. I was like, this guy is the best. Like I'm so <laughs> blessed. And then the next morning I went to training and he wasn't there. And I was just like, all righty, you're all talk, aren't you? Yeah. And I kind of, I was a bit frustrated that morning. And, you know, I was with my friend Tanya, who I mentioned before. Mm. And um, we decided it doesn't matter if your coach isn't here, we still need to get the training session done. So we got in, we did our training session. We went to the gym and Steve wasn't at the gym either. And mm. so we did our gym session with our strength and conditioning coach, Jamie. And um, I got a phone call while I was at the gym from the CEO of Swimming Australia. And I was like, this is really strange mm. that the CEO was calling me on like a classic Tuesday morning. Mm. And he kind of just asked if I had a space where I could just be by myself and not around other people. And I was like, oh, this is odd. Anyway, he told me that my coach had had a stroke during the night and that's why he mm. wasn't at training and that he was currently at the hospital and we didn't know how it was going to be and how he was going to be. Mm. And I felt like I was gutted because mm. like I spent the whole morning thinking like what a jerk. Like he mm. literally said this to me last night and now he's not at training. Um, so I found out that he was very sick and I was very, very worried. Mm. And, you know, I left training and I tried to call him and I tried to call him and he wasn't picking up. And so the next few days were a little bit of a blur, but mm. we started getting pieces of information filtering through on how Steve was going. He was still in the hospital. Turns out he didn't have a stroke. He actually had a grade three brain tumor. Oh, wow. Um, and so that was an absolute kick in the guts for his wife, his, his daughter, the whole swimming mm. community in itself. And it was really hard news for us to hear. And, mm. you know, at that time, like, I didn't even care about the Paralympics. Like, I just mm. wanted to make sure that Steve was okay. And so by this stage, when all this had happened, we had a few short months to go until London. And um, we had to relocate with a day's notice to Queensland and train at the University of Sunshine Coast. From Canberra. From Canberra. Yeah. And so we got put in this house that Swimming Australia owned. And at the same time, I was, like, stressed off my head. Mm. <laughs> and um, I was just like, you've just got to get through this time, like, if, if you don't commit to all of your training sessions, Steve's going to be very upset at you. Yeah, right. And so I got through all my training sessions and unfortunately Steve was too sick to come to the, to the London Paralympics. Mm-hmm. But I called him before I left and kind of told him that I was going to go over there and swim for him and <laughs> I did that um, and swam very well. And the greatest thing ever was coming home from London and going to visit him at his home and he looked so sick and – you know, you could tell he'd had a really tough couple of months and to like be able to pull a gold medal out of my bag and to put around his neck was so cool. <laughs> and I have like photos of him wearing it and he's like, he looked great in it. He suits gold medals like nothing else. <laughs> yeah, so that was really, really tough. And like I had a really tough time in the lead up to London with other things. And so after London, I was going to call it quits. And the day that I got back in for my very first swimming competition, like my first race after about two years out of the water, um, was the day that Steve passed away. So I don't know if that was like saying something to mm. me, but yeah, he was another coach that holds a really special place in my heart. So mm. there's two now. You get very, very close to your swim coaches. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. For gold, for London, that was four gold that you brought home? Yeah, four. Four gold. Four gold. So I was going over there hoping to win one. Yeah. I came home with four. Like I was over the moon. I was just like, life is the best. <laughs> <laughs> and one surprise was 
the 100 free as well. It wasn't your normal, wasn't your pet race. No. So I had, well, I had two real surprise gold medals. Um, so one of them was a 100 meter freestyle and it was a real bittersweet moment for me because it was the last individual event that I had on my swimming calendar for the Paralympics. And um, I was going to be racing my hero, Natalie, for the last time. And she was retiring. She was retiring. Yeah. I was I'm still gutted. I'm so gutted. <laughs> anyway, so it was the last time I was ever going to race her. And so I was really upset going into that race. Like, and when I say I was really upset, I was tearing up mm. in the call room because I was talking to her and I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about how this is going to be the last time that I'm going to have this moment with my ultimate hero. <laughs> and um, I remember lining up to walk out into the stadium, which, by the way, is the coolest thing you'll ever do. Um, so I was lining up. I could hear like the crowd going and everything roaring. And all I could think about was like staring at the back of Natalie's head being like, this is the last time. Like, this is the last time. So you're not even thinking about the race. No. You're just thinking about her. Yeah, which is probably a really good approach. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we walked out, like the crowd's cheering. I can pretty much hear my mum separate from the rest of the crowd because she cheers a little bit louder than everyone else. <laughs> and all I could think about was Natalie. And on the take your marks, I like had tears in my goggles. Oh my like God. I was beside myself and I dived in and I was like, just swim as fast as you can, but you know, stick to your race plan. And so I stuck to my race plan pretty well. And then on the way back in the second 50, so we had one lap to go, I was breathing on this side that Natalie wasn't on. And there was this Chinese swimmer who was two lanes over from me. And I was like, just stay in front of that Chinese swimmer. <laughs> and so I was like just digging deep and just like kind of muscling through and giving it everything I had. And then I touched the wall. And in London, if you win a gold medal, your block illuminates with one light. And then if you win a silver, it's two lights. Mm -hmm. And then bronze is three, obviously. And I saw one light and I was like, whoa, like what? <laughs> and then I heard my mom screaming and then I was like, oh, like she was happy because I obviously won a medal or something, but obviously it wasn't gold, like there's a faulty block or something. And then I kind of looked at Natalie and she just looked gutted. And then I looked around at the scoreboard and I won the race. Like I'm still trying to comprehend, like still how I won that race. And then I was so happy. Mm. It was like it was unexpected and it yep. was a really, really good feeling. And then I looked at Natalie and she was crying and I was just like, oh, my God, I feel so bad. <laughs> Her final race. I, I still feel really guilty. I have a problem with guilt yeah. from what I've been <laughs> since I've been speaking to you. <laughs> it's come up a couple of times. Man, I felt so guilty. And like what do you say to someone who has just finished like an unbelievable swimming career and then gets beaten, like just touched out on their last race. Mm. What do you say to them? I didn't know what to say to her. So I kind of just hugged her and she said like, like, great job. Like, she's just so humble. Yeah. She's like, great job. And we had the medal ceremony and it was like the most awkward medal ceremony I've ever done because I, I was standing in the gold position and I mm. feel like I shouldn't have been there. Wow. Um, and she's crying because she's finished this swimming career, which I know when I finish my swimming career, I'm going to be the same. And like, we did our little lap of honour and I was still looking at it like, this is the last time I'm going to do a lap of honour with you. Stuff <laughs> the gold medal, I'm just still fangirling. Yeah, it was super cool. So you had a bit of a setback after the 2012 games. Yeah. Talk us through that. That was real tough. Was so, it related with Steve as well? No, it was actually related to the coach that I had before, Steve. So when I was at the AIS, I was so excited to be there that like, I would have given my other leg just to like, have a scholarship. Like I just mm. loved it. 
anyway, my coach at the time, it was, he had a very much like a win at all cost attitude. Mm-hmm. And at first I was really on board with that. But we had this week where we had to swim 100 kilometers in a week. Mm-hmm. And so that's 10 sessions of 10 kilometers. How much would you do like on an average week? Um, like 50. Yeah. So it was right. doubling okay. our load. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I got like six sessions in and it was getting to the point where the sessions were so long that if I didn't finish them, I had to come back after the gym finish the session and then come back for the afternoon session and do yeah, another yeah. 10. Like it was just almost, it was almost impossible. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got about six sessions in and like it was so unbearable to get through these sessions. that I would, like I pretty much cried my way through the last mm. four. But I was like, you know, win at all costs, do what I'm told, mm. just get it done. And after that week, I had terrible shoulder pain. This is probably two years out from the London Paralympics. Mm. I started experiencing this excruciating shoulder pain where my shoulders would ache no matter what I was doing, mm. you know, whether it was writing, typing, swimming, washing my hair, mm. like everything hurt. And this winner all cost attitude was starting to take its toll, its toll on me. And um, I would turn up to the pool and I'd tell my coach that my shoulders were sore and he would swim me through the session. You know, I didn't particularly care too much mm. that I was getting injured. And, you know, now that I look back at those two years, what was actually happening was my tendons in my shoulders were tearing. So I had tears going through my tendons and my cartilage was peeling off. Mm. And like, that's what was hurting was my bone was just rubbing against mm. bone, which is obviously very bad for you. Anyway, I was having severe shoulder pain two years out from the games and my coach would just keep swimming me through, swimming me through. And I was so scared that I was going to lose my scholarship that I just did what he said. Yeah, yeah. And I was 18, 19 at the time and I didn't stand up for myself. Mm. And if I had my time again, I would do it completely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't stand up for myself. My coach kind of told me, if you want to keep your scholarship, you have to keep training. Mm. And so it got to the point where I couldn't wash my hair because mm. my shoulders were that bad. I kind of had to do this like bend over hair wash oh, wow. thing. And I remember sitting on a spin bike um, at training and – I got hot and I couldn't even take my own jacket off. And then I would get in the pool and I'd swim another 5K. Wow. And to get through that and push yourself through that much pain Mm. for six hours a day for two years really took its toll on Mm. me. And by the time I got to the London Games, like, you know, having my shoulder injuries and what happened with Steve and that whole experience, like by the time I finished, I was like so done with Mm. swimming that um, if I saw a cup of water, I would – have like a bit of a panic attack. Mm. Um, And I had to see a sports psychologist Mm -hmm. uh, in the following 12 months. And she told me that like I had proper trauma from my experiences Mm. of like pushing myself that that hard Uh, and just completely ignoring any part of my well-being. Mm. Um, And, you know, at the age of 19, that's a really dangerous thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So I was in a really dark place after London and didn't want to see the water ever again. And um, You wanted to quit? I quit. I did quit. And for me to call the shots and saying I'm quitting wasn't a big deal to me. I was just like, I'm done. Like, I don't, Mm. I really don't want to be here anymore. Like, I don't, I can't even drink water. Like, it's getting to that point. And so I quit and I didn't want to see the pool ever again. And um, yeah, that was my swimming career done as far as I was concerned. So, what did you do in that time? Well, I had to have my shoulders reconstructed because they were that messed up. (laughs) And so. I'd have both of them done. So I took a year out where I just, I worked at Kathmandu, which is mm-hmm. the best place to work, by the way. Mm-hmm. I just napped in tents all day. <laughs> um, so I got like just a job at Kathmandu. I was living with mum and dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went from all this glory to 
like just getting some job that wasn't paying very well and living back with my parents again. Mm. Um, and I kind of realized that I didn't want to keep doing that for the rest of my life. Mm. And so I decided that I was going to relocate to Sydney and I drove to Sydney and I, I, um, I got a job there the next day as a swim coach because that was the only thing I really knew how to do was yeah. to swim. And um, after my shoulder surgeries, Swimming Australia kind of wanted to keep me around because I just won mm. four gold medals at the London Games. Sure. So they didn't kind of want to flick me off yet. Yeah. And um, they invited me on this Swimming Australia camp and I still had my arm in a sling. So I was just like, I can't swim, but I'll sit and watch you guys train, I mm. guess. So I went on this swim camp and I thought it was ridiculous that I was even there and it was at the AIS. And so I had really bad memories there, obviously. Mm. Um, I was back there mm. and I had my arm and a shoulder sling mm. because of the AIS and yeah. what I'd been through there. So I didn't really want to be there. Anyway, I was kind of just watching my teammates train and wasn't feeling very good about myself or my prospects to return back into the pool. Mm. And we had Patria Thomas come into the camp and speak to our squad mm-hmm. about her experience as a swimmer because she was the best. Yeah. Like I love Patria. And she told us all about how she had shoulder reconstructions Mm. and I was sitting there and I had my arm in a sling from a shoulder reconstruction Mm. and she was saying how she had her shoulders reconstructed and then she went to the Olympics the next year and won a gold medal Mm. and I was like whoa like Mm. this could be my moment where Mm. I can get back in and I can you know potentially win another Paralympic gold medal yeah so I was all for that I went to the pool that afternoon I took my sling off well, I called my surgeon to see if it was okay. Yeah. And then I took my sling off and I've got this photo where I kind of like jumped out to the five meter flags and I did like my first stroke back into the wall and like it felt so good. Yeah. And so I was like, let's do this, let's win. Yeah. <laughs> but my body didn't remember how to swim and my mind did. And so it was a very slow process. process. How but, far out from Rio was that? Um, this was two years out from Rio. Yeah. So yeah. we had world championships like nine months after I got yeah. back in. And I went to the World Championships and that was where I broke my first world record and I won like two or three gold medals or something. And I worked so hard to get to that point and I was so proud of myself. And people always ask, you know, what my proudest moment is in my swimming career. And for me, it wasn't winning Paralympic gold medals. Like it was getting back in after going through such a hard time, like not just throwing it away because the amount of swimmers and people that I've seen who are going through a hard time and Mm. they think it's too hard Mm. Um, for me like it was just about going through the process if you look at the bigger picture that is so overwhelming but if you just go you know one day at a time like it it led to my only first and only world record for me so yeah I'm so proud of that and then on to Rio for two gold three silver and one bronze yep as well yeah so there you go you're now preparing for your fourth Paralympics in 2020, which is amazing. Yeah. But tell me, you you touched on this earlier on and, and I, I wanted to go into more depth mm-hmm. now, but how has that sporting landscape and the social societal landscape changed for para-athletes in that time since 2008? Yeah. So, well, my first um, team was 2006 and back then I still didn't really understand what the Paralympics was. So to see where it's gone from you know, being a child with a disability and not knowing what the Paralympics is, mm. to all of a sudden, you know, you have Paralympians who are genuine sporting heroes. And one thing that I have noticed about the differences between the Olympics and Paralympics is that 
people who watch the Paralympics are really invested in the stories behind the athletes, mm. um, not necessarily their sporting achievements. And so for me, like that's why I love being a Paralympian because I get to spend time with like people, like you couldn't even comprehend what mm. they've been through. Mm. And they've kind of not cast it aside, but they've kind of used that to make themselves into a really strong, resilient person. And then they've channeled that into being an athlete, which is just the coolest thing mm. ever. And like I train with the Campbell sisters and I was chatting to Kate about this when I first joined the swimming program, like what the difference between Olympics and Paralympics is, because she's obviously an Olympian and I'm a Paralympian and I was interested in her mm -hmm. thoughts. And like, to be brutally honest, she was telling me that if she goes to an Olympic Games and she's expected to win and she doesn't, you know, she gets, I don't know, death threats and she gets mm. completely like ripped through the mud and mm. it's heartbreaking. Whereas if a Paralympian goes to the Paralympics and doesn't win, people seem to see the story and the person behind that. Mm. And like, I just wish people could do that with all athletes. Mm. Um, so when I chat to Olympic athletes or get to know Olympic athletes, like I'm really interested in the person behind them and not necessarily what they've done in, uh, in the pool. Mm. How would you describe that change in that sporting landscape and that is it better now for for um, para-athletes or what's the most kind of the current issues or the biggest issues affecting para-athletes at the moment? I think the, the biggest issue that's affecting para-athletes at the moment and always has is equality. Like for me, I train in an Olympic program, so mm -hmm. I do the same amount of sessions as the Olympic guys. You know, I swim the same distances as them, the same time cycles as them. Yet when I go overseas, my championships necessarily isn't televised um, and that can be mm. really frustrating for me because like I really want to promote the Paralympics and mm. what we're all about and it's really hard when uh, some people aren't getting on board with that. Mm. So, you know, if we wind back to the Rio Paralympics, that was the very first Paralympics that was televised on commercial television and mainstream television mm. and that was such an exciting moment for us because like people, some people didn't know what the Paralympics was yeah. and they're turning their television on to Channel 7 and they see the Paralympics mm. and they're like whoa and it's not necessarily that they weren't interested in the Paralympics it's that they didn't know no. about it yeah and you know that's when social media is coming into play um, you've got networks who are really interested in being involved because mm. like people are just loving it mm. and I think you know we saw how much people love the Paralympics at the recent Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast it's the only games where we have para-athletes and Olympic athletes mm. that who are racing in the same team yeah and um <laughs> being in the Commonwealth, part of the Commonwealth Games team was like super cool. Mm. Um, it's, it's really funny. After I finished competing at those games, I logged onto my social media and I had so many messages from able-bodied kids who were like, I want to be a Paralympian <laughs> when I'm older. Like, how do I become a Paralympian? And I was like, oh. Um, how do I break like, this to you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the most heartwarming thing that I've probably ever been through was getting, we always get fan mail in like mass packages. Mm. Um, so they come into like the mail center and we got, they all get grouped together. Anyway, so I got fan mail um, from these school kids all around the world who were watching the Commonwealth Games. And the coolest thing was, is that they were drawing stick figures of people on like wheelchairs. They were drawing stick figures of people with limbs missing. Like they yeah. understood yeah. what having a disability was How at powerful. that age. And mm. I was like, if these kids who are four or five years old are grasping the concept that, you know, this stick figure here mm. who's missing a leg can be 
on a, mm-hmm. a podium and be a champion, you know, that's going to completely change mm. the entire world and yeah. it actually will. Yeah. And like, how can you not get excited about that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like the word disability? Um, like some people get really offended at yeah. disability. I don't um, because it's just what people have grown up with and what we used to. People tend to be using the word impairment more now, which I think speaks more true to people. What I've found, um, you know, when it comes to disability, using the word disability and impairment is that they are two completely different words um, because for me, having one leg, I necessarily don't have something that is disabling my ability to do something. Mm. Um, I do have an impairment, but it's not disabling my ability. Mm-hmm. And what I found, you know, when it comes to disability is that it's other people's opinions and perceptions of you that tend to shape what your disability is. So if you take an example of somebody who's in a wheelchair and they go out into the community and it's not accessible for them, they're going to have a disability because mm. they have a disadvantage. But if you made a community completely 100% accessible for everybody in a wheelchair, mm. they will live the exact same life that you will live mm. and they won't have a disability. They'll only have an impairment. And so when it comes to disability, like I really think it's about what the community does in terms of how they provide for those people or what mm. their perceptions are of those people. Um, otherwise, they just have an impairment. Um, so you find that um, cities who host the Paralympic Games, they're forced into action into creating more accessible mm. environments. And that's where Tokyo at the moment is really struggling, mm. is that they have a lot of old infrastructure where mm. obviously they're not catering for people with, with disabilities. Mm. And now they're hosting a Paralympic Games. Yeah, yeah. And so they're in like panic mode on how to create a more accessible city. But that is going to change the city of Tokyo Mm. forever. Like it will always become more accessible. And people with disabilities aren't going to be shunned in their community as much as they have been. Mm. And that's just the impact that having hosting a Paralympic Games can have. Mm. Carrying on from that conversation, you gave your niece a really special Mm. present for Christmas. And I saw this on your social media and it just, it just made my heart completely melt. Um, Tell us what it was. Okay, so I actually didn't think that this Christmas present was going to take off as much as it did. So um, last year, Barbie released like a disability line, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say, where a lot of their Barbies had like different types of impairments. So one of them's in a wheelchair. There's a Barbie who has a prosthetic leg. And I was like, that is so cool. And so my niece is five and she's obsessed with dolls, like Mm. loves them. She Mm. always has a doll on her. And I was like, I would love to get her a doll that has a disability because, you know, it's been really interesting watching her grow up. At first when she was like one or two, she knew that I was a little bit different mm. and she kind of asked me a few questions about my disability. But now she kind of, she knows how to put my leg on charge. Like she knows how to put my <laughs> leg on. She asked me the other week if she could put my leg on for me. And I was like, this is super cool that you're learning how to do all this. Yeah. Anyway, so there was this like Barbie who had a prosthetic leg and it looked very similar to mine. And so I decided to get it for her. And then I have the Australian flag on my leg. And I was like, you know, it won't take much to just like hand paint an Australian flag on to my leg. <laughs> Which yours is. You have the Australian flag yeah, on your so leg. So I decided to hand paint the flag onto this prosthetic Barbie leg. And then I made the bottom bit black because mine's black as well. And then I was like, oh, I should get her a little swimsuit um, <laughs> as well because that'll be really cute. And um, I don't have any sewing skills. Like if... I can't even sew on a button. And so (laughs) I called on one of my friends who is a brilliant seamstress and I gave her one of my old 
um, training suits from the Rio Paralympics. So it's mm. like a legit training suit. And she made a swimsuit out of it. But then she made all of these other Paralympic clothes like a Dolphins Australia, Swimming Australia t-shirt, cool jacket that she used the emblem from the mm. swimsuit and made all this cool clothing. And I was like, whoa, this is like, like this is looking really <laughs> <Awesome>. cool. <laughs> I know. So I decided to make myself one as well. And so I've got one too. Nice. Anyway, I gifted this little Paralympic Barbie to my... Not just any, an Ellie Cole Paralympic yeah. Barbie. And so um, it was really, I was really nervous to have my niece open it. Like I was holding my breath at it. <laughs> anyway, Why, so, she wouldn't like it? Or? Oh no, because she just got this thing called a baby alive right before she opened oh, mine. Right, okay. And she really, it's like a baby you can feed it, it talks and everything. And I was like, oh God, she's going to open like my crappy little Paralympic Barbie now. So I was like holding my breath and she opens it and she goes, Honey Ellie, it's you. And she loved it. And she's like, how do I pull the leg off? And straight away, like, she, like she's tugging on the leg. And I was like, don't pull it. The leg does come off. But I was like, don't pull too hard. You'll ruin the paint job. Yeah. Um, and then I told her she's not allowed to play with it because she hadn't wanted to wreck it. I was like, this Barbie has to sit on your shelf and you are not allowed to touch it. You went from cool auntie to cruel auntie in yeah. like She'll two like seconds. It. She'll like it when she's older. That's awesome. Well, we finish off every podcast by asking what advice you would give to your 10-year-old self. And I think now's a good time talking about you growing up as a kid and the Barbie and the difference it would have made and the changes in the landscape from when you were a kid to how it is now. Yeah. But some of the challenges that still exist for para-athletes. What advice, Ellie, would you give your 10-year-old self? It's always interesting to think back to your 10-year-old self. But you know, if I could go back to my 10-year-old self, I would tell myself not to judge anybody, which I, I never really did as a kid, but especially don't judge myself mm. um, because I think that's why I had such a difficult time when I was a teenager. I was judging myself very heavily. Um, and at the end of the day, all I, I did was follow what I was passionate about. And, you know, it, once I accepted the fact that I was different and that I loved that part about me, my life was a lot easier. And, you know, it can be amazing how much of a critic we can be to ourselves mm. um, and it doesn't really serve any purpose. So mm. I would tell myself just to really be kind and to reserve all of that judgment um, because you can pretty much do anything that you want to. Mm. Um, like I've seen that time and time again. I've actually been beaten by a guy in Guitar Hero who had no arms. So if he can beat me in Guitar Hero, <laughs> you can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ellie, <laughs> I think we've all learnt stuff and had a lot of laughs um, along the way. Thank you for sharing your story on On Her Game. Thank you. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app or search On Her Game podcast.